morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Those of you that are here, those of you that are joining online, we welcome you as well. And um, we are in the last uh, Sunday of our series on the knowledge of the holy. And um, it's the last week of sort of life groups with homework, I guess, unless you're behind and you're catching up. But I think some life groups are doing an extra week again as well. Um, so hopefully you're in one of those groups that's doing like a social group after this week and having a barbecue or some food or something like that. Um, but we are, uh, the final attribute that we're talking about, not the final attribute of God, because he's got a lot of them, uh, is sovereignty. And I'm just going to open uh, in prayer and then reading scripture, and we'll dive right in on this final attribute. Father God, we thank you for your word. We're about to read your word now. And we know that spiritual things are only perceived by spiritual people. And so I pray that, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, that your Holy Spirit would be even opening the eyes and the ears of those who may not yet know you, uh, that they may perceive things that are beyond this world, realities of who you are. And for us who are believers, Lord, I pray that these realities would transform us, that we do not come away from your word unchanged. And that we do, as has been prayed, uh, know you more closely and more deeply as you show who you are to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. See, now that I, even I, am he, and there is no other God beside me, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It is I who, by my, by my great power and my outstretched arm, have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Amen. That's Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, Isaiah, Proverbs, Proverbs, Psalm, Psalm, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Daniel. 
put that together because we're talking about God's sovereignty. And I just stayed in the Old Testament there, but beginning to end in the Bible, there is no doubt what God says about himself and who's in charge. As I was attempting to prepare for today, I I started and stopped writing this message four or five times. You see, it's possible to talk about God's sovereignty dozens of different ways. God is sovereign over all creation because by his word, his decree, he spoke it into being. By his decrees, creation is governed. He set the boundaries of everything, of mankind and creatures. He established the moral law. He has the authority to judge based on that law. He has the power to enforce judgments and to uphold all things that he judges and that he creates. God is especially sovereign, if we think of him as a king, over his people, first Israel and now the church. By his word we're alive, and in him we live and move and have our being. He's making us a kingdom of priests. Before the foundation of the world, he loved us and caused us to be born again into his kingdom of light. God is certainly sovereign in heaven, and as we saw him in Isaiah's vision last week, he's high and lifted up. He's exalted on his throne in heaven. God is the God of angel armies. And in that sense, when we're talking about kingdoms of God that he's sovereign over, he's sovereign over geographical areas, whether that means the whole universe or the boundaries of Israel or any kingdom or the citizens of those places, he is the king of them. All the peoples of the earth, the tribes of Israel or the saints of the church, however you want to talk about God's sovereignty, he's king over it all. But we're also talking about the king dominion of God. We're talking about his authority, his jurisdiction, his will being done exactly as he chooses it to be done. His control over everything that happens within his kingdoms. And all the kings that, all the things that make a king what a king is, God is all of those things and he's the ultimate king. God is sovereign from the Latin, literally meaning the over reigning. He reigns over every other authority. In New Testament terms, I was tempted to talk about the sovereignty of Jesus, specifically the good news that we receive in the New Testament is primarily made up of the fact that Jesus is now seated on his throne. That's the good news from the heavenly perspective. We think of the good news as in we are saved, yay. The rest of the universe and the heavens think the good news is that Jesus has his rightful throne. That's the good news. And so we could talk about the sovereignty of God in what's called the session of Christ as he is seated there. Acts 5.31 says God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Or 1 Peter 3.22 says Jesus has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So that we could talk about God's sovereignty in the person of Jesus Christ and his rightful inheritance of the throne. When talking about the sovereignty of Jesus as he sits now, we could talk about some pretty incredible things. As Christians, we often spend a lot of time thinking about what Jesus has done for us in past tense verbs. He came, he lived, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And then we have a different kind of hope in all the future tense ideas of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come again and he's going to judge and he's going to glorify and he's going to wipe away every tear. But as Christians, we often overlook the present tense verbs. What is Jesus doing now? And so we could talk about the sovereignty of God in terms of Jesus interceding for us before the Father, empowering and guarding our faith by his spirit, bringing his kingdom more fully into the world. And all of those would also be talking about the sovereignty of God. 
his overreigning, his dominion over all things and controlling all things. So I'm not preaching on any of that. Because <laughs> you can preach on sovereignty dozens of ways. And so to all of that and to say that is simply to say yes to all of that. And I hope you say yes with me. I'm not going to unpack all the very many ways that God is sovereign in that regard. I'm not going to sketch every theme of sovereignty that the Bible unfolds of us from Genesis to Revelation. I'm not going to contrast the created kingdom and the heavenly kingdom and talk about how these kingdoms are pressing together until they are finally consummated. I'm not even going to talk about how our free will and God's sovereignty intersect without conflict. Those are also sermons that I save for another time. I literally had to wave the white flag when I was trying to write this sermon. I just said, I give up on teaching this the way that I normally would. When it comes to this attribute of God, his sovereignty, we just have to understand that the entire Bible through every author at all times says that God is in control. He's in control of all things at every level of creation in every possible way without exception. And I could show you that in scripture, but I'm not going to. Maybe next year we'll get a six-part series on the sovereignty of God. What I want to do this morning, what I want to take some time to do is to leap directly to the application part of the sermon. I want to leap directly to the most important implications of that reality. What does that truth really mean for us as Christians and even for non-Christians? How does the sovereignty of God influence how we understand the world, how we understand the circumstances that we live in ourselves, and how we can live far less anxious lives because this is true? So the first implication, the first reality that we take from the sovereignty of God, just declaring it as true from the beginning is that nothing is by chance or accident. God directs everything. He creates and sustains creation. If we were to unpack God's sovereignty in all creation, we could dig into the Genesis verb bara, create, and see that in all scripture, only God can bara. Thought I had a tag for that. It means to bring into being out of nothing and that the created thing requires sustaining. That if you remove the creator, the bara created thing ceases. Humans can asa, make. Humans can yatsar, form. Humans can kun, establish. But only God is able to bara. He's the only thing in the Bible that gets that verb. And that's a sovereign kind of creation that sustains everything. Which means for us, and is confirmed by scripture, that God is directly involved in all things at all times. God establishes kings and kingdoms and removes them, Daniel tells us. He defines the boundaries of nations, Deuteronomy 32.28 says, and Acts 17 says. Our entire lives are sustained by his hands, Acts 17.28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. Every seeming inconsequential and random act is governed by God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The dice are thrown into the lap, but their every decision is from the Lord. Nothing that happens anywhere in the universe is by accident. It's impossible for us to live as Christians and not filter every part of our life, what we would call providence, through this knowledge. 
Just as we talked about last week how we perceive the glory of God as kind of the outward manifestation of his holiness. Holiness is what God is. Glory is what we see. Providence is everything that happens in every particular way everywhere is the visible manifestation of God's attribute of sovereignty. God is sovereign, and what we perceive is providence. Everything that happens is provided by God. That means, Christian and non-Christian, where you were born was decided by God. Your parents were decided by God. Your country Your wealth or your poverty that you received, your advantages and your disadvantages were all determined and ordained by God. That has to be meaningful to you in your relationship with God. That's something that you have to parse your thoughts about your upbringing and history through. As you think about who you are and where you came from, why you're in Canada, why these parents, why these brothers and sisters, why this wealth, why this poverty, why this anything, you have to think as a Christian... None of it was by accident. God did it. God gave me these parents, this poverty or this wealth, this advantage or this disadvantage. Presently, your spouse is yours by God's providence. Your kids, your job, where you live, your abilities, your talents, your weakness, your health, even your accidents are not accidents. There's nothing in your life that has not passed through the hands of God and been established by God. Your being here today or hearing this message three weeks from now, or 30 years from now, is not an accident. God is doing everything. When you think about that, what is it in your life that's going on right now that you need to pull out of your life and re-examine in light of God's sovereignty? What are you wrestling with that you have not passed through the filter of knowing that God is in control? That everything is his providence. You see the root word of providence, it's provide. Provide, we get from the Latin pro in front of video. You know the word video, right? Veni, vidi, vici, I came, I saw, I I conquered. Video is to see. So provision is foreseeing what we need. God's providence or provision is foreseeing what it is that we need and providing it for us. So Christian, leaning into God's sovereignty in sustaining and determining everything about our lives should change a lot about how we see our world and how we see our own personal circumstances. The absolute sovereignty of God means that he has not allowed anything to happen to you by accident. And it means, yes, it means what you're thinking. It means that God is sovereign over both good and evil. We can pull some of the pieces of this out of our opening text that I read. Deuteronomy 32 39 says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Samuel 2 says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Isaiah says it this way, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
You see, we make a grave mistake when we try to protect God from being accused of the effects of the curse of the world that he placed on the world. We sometimes as Christians try to protect his reputation and give him credit for the good stuff, but we think we're doing him favors when we keep him distant from what we perceive as disaster or calamity or harm or illness that befalls us. Understand this one thing if you don't understand anything else today. God knows the implications of his sovereignty. The Bible doesn't avoid the implications of God's absolute sovereignty. God gladly takes all the responsibility for good and bad. He is ultimately overreigning all of it. It all goes through his hands. He's not afraid of the implications of disaster and sorrow and harm and sin. The problem with disaster and harm and suffering does not lie with God. The problem lies with our being able to understand that God is fully confident and correct and upright and moral in every decision that he has made since we fell in rebellion to him and he cursed the earth. God has ordained every single thing to accomplish his purposes perfectly. And that's our problem in not understanding that, not God's problem right down to the calamity that he has established on the earth and in our lives, in your life, and in mine. It has come from God for his purposes. And he is quite happy to take responsibility for it. And when you come right down to it, who do you want to be in control of calamity and disaster? There's really only three options in any worldview. Either disaster and suffering is completely random There is no God or he is completely indifferent in allowing anything to happen. And therefore, our suffering really is purposeless. It really has no meaning. It is completely random. That's one option. Or if you do believe in good and evil, if you do believe in God and what the Bible tells us about reality, then the other possibility is that maybe Satan and evil is in control of disaster and suffering. And therefore, our suffering is accomplishing Satan's purposes. Or the third option is God is in control, that he reigns over our calamity and suffering, and therefore he gets to decide how it turns out and what it is used for and what it accomplishes. Christian, we all want what the Bible tells us. God is in control. He is the author of the suffering that comes upon us so that it accomplishes the author's purpose. Now, if it makes you feel better to say that God mediates or controls our suffering and that he redeems it and that helps you deal with the mystery of it, you can do that. But you don't have to. You can say about God what God says about himself in his scripture. I form light and I create bara, darkness. I make well-being and I create bara, calamity, bara. Only God gets bara. And he creates calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. We can say that about God because God says that about God. And that should not alarm us. That should comfort us. All that should alarm us in this conflict of God's sovereignty and the reality of suffering is if we don't trust God with it. Not trusting God with his sovereign decisions to cause and prevent only what he wills would be an alarming thing. If I woke up in the morning someday and I stopped trusting that God was ultimately sovereign and he was the provider of all 
things, good or ill, in my mind, then I would be alarmed with myself. Trusting God and his word and his decisions is the unalarming thing to do. We know that suffering ultimately has come from sin, and yes, that indeed means even our sin is under God's authority. Not only is suffering and calamity under God's authority and directed by his will, even our sin is under his authority. God's sovereign control takes no vacations. It knows no limits. God is relentlessly sovereign and relentlessly redeeming. He is bending. God is turning everything and all things to his redeeming sovereign purposes. Even rebellious sinners who think they are thwarting God, who think they are frustrating God, who think they are escaping God, who don't even know or care about God or what he is doing, or who are deliberately trying to oppose God, God is ultimately sovereign even over their sin. Now that does not mean that God approves of it. It does not mean that God desires it. It just means that you can trust God even with your sin because God will ultimately redeem it. There is nothing that happens by accident. There's nothing that happens apart from God's sovereignty. Just never pat yourself on the back for giving God so much good sin to work with. Paul says, may it never be. Don't go on sinning. Even though the more sin abounds, God's grace abounds. Even though God is sovereign over our sin, Don't get up in the morning and think, God, I'm going to give you a lot to work with today. But it is important that we remember this when we do sin. Or we would despair if God was not sovereign even over our sin. Just two quick examples from the Bible. In the Old Testament, most notably Joseph. You know the story, Joseph The favored son of Isaac, coat of many colors, has the dreams. He's intended by God to be the means of grace to the tribes of Israel, which don't exist yet, to all of Abraham's family. Brothers hate him. They decide they want him dead or God. They make wicked plans, drop him in a pit, sell him into slavery to Egypt. Joseph gets thrown in jail as a slave, works his way out and up to the palace. And God sets him in place over all of Egypt during a famine. You want to talk about understanding sovereignty and providence. Joseph understands sovereignty. But then Joseph indeed gets the opportunity to rescue his family from this famine and protect them as God's people. But here's what Joseph knows about his brother's sins. He says in Genesis 45, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Don't worry, brothers. (laughs) You sold me, but God sent me. You are not to worry about me. Worry about your sin, but don't worry about me. Because God was in control of it. And then he spells it out for them in Genesis 50. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think about your own sin. (laughs) I'm trusting you haven't thrown anybody in a pit intending to kill them or sold them into slavery. Maybe you've done something worse. God is sovereign over your sin. Repent of it, confess it, be transformed, conform yourselves to the image of God, but know that God is sovereign even over the things you did, even over the consequences of your sin. That's the only reason I have any hope in Isaac's adulthood. (laughs) 
You realize that was a shot at me. <laughs> okay, because my fatherhood was a series of sins. <laughs> but God is sovereign over my sinful fathering. So God's got Isaac. I couldn't sleep at night if I didn't know that God was sovereign over my sin. Because God's got the consequences with Isaac. If you can go ahead into the New Testament, you have Jesus. Joseph is just a picture of the Redeemer who was to come, just a shadow of the one who would arrive. And we see the same thing takes place. There's a whole lot of wickedness that the Jews, the Gentiles, the governing authorities, Herod, Pilate, they all intended as evil to Jesus. There's a lot of sinful decisions and motivations that are directly aimed at God, not just sinning against others or sinning against people made in God's image. These people literally plotted against God. But as the disciples pray later about their own ministry and and how their ministry is going to get accomplished in the face of this sin and this evil, they say in Acts chapter 4 to God, you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. (laughs) Did Pilate sin? Yes. Did the Pharisees sin? Yes. Did the Gentiles in Israel sin? Yes. Was it outside of the sovereignty of God? No. Exactly what God wanted happened, even in the most horrific and direct sin against God. Look, we, we cannot even plot directly against God in our sin and God not be in control of it, directing it, bending it, bringing life out of death, accomplishing some purpose that aligns with his will that we cannot even fathom. But that is the sovereignty of God. It knows no boundaries. You cannot escape God's sovereignty. So do not be discouraged. Our king, our God, he rules and reigns. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over your disaster and your calamity. He is sovereign over even your sin. So never despair. Never be discouraged. That God is somehow not in every little tiny detail of your life in absolute control and authority. And these realities of God being sovereign in such a manifest and thorough and saturated way over calamity and suffering and sin has implications for us that go even further. First of all, we understand then from that that God never wastes anything that happens in your life. Romans 8, 28, we love this one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for our good if we trust God and are called and are brought in under the purposes of God. And God, Paul does not have in mind here happy circumstances when he says good, right? Paul does not say, and we know that for those who love God, all things are going to be happy You know, and he's going to work all things for our happiness. No, all things for our good. Paul has ultimate good in mind. He's going to go on after this verse to talk about being predestined and called and conformed and justified and glorified, all spiritual realities. God is using all things that happen in this created kingdom for our ultimate good in the spiritual kingdom. So again, we come back to your marriage, your kids, your job, your calamity, your illness, 
your strengths, your weaknesses, your ability, your inability. God uses all things. All things God can use. All things God will use for your ultimate good. There's no way the comprehensive sovereignty of God in all things can't change how you see and think and feel and act in the midst of all those things. It has to change how you think about your marriage, how you think about your job, how you think about whatever happened this week or three years ago, how you think about your illness. The fact that God is sovereignly, comprehensively, sorry, comprehensively sovereign in all of these things has to change how we think about them. Jesus gives an example of God redeeming an apparent calamity and not wasting it in a man born blind. In John 9, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples are like, I don't even get this. I thought that evil was connected to sin. I thought we got punished for being bad, so either he sinned or his parents sinned, but he was born blind. So it must have been his parents. He hasn't even done anything yet. This just seems like random calamity. Who sinned? Jesus says nothing. I didn't even have anything to do with sin. The reason this man was born blind is so that I could be glorified in him. And in fact, it's going to work out good for him too. Jesus pulls another example from the headlines in Luke 13. Talks about the 18 who the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. And he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He's like, do you think this is just some random accident? Or, sorry, do you think that God, like, caused this tower to fall on them and it wasn't just something random? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Eighteen people die in a construction accident. They were not especially sinful, but their death, all death, in part, is an alarm bell. God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste somebody born a certain way. He doesn't waste a construction accident. Everything that happens in the world, everything that's happening in your life is being used. It's not being wasted. All death, all suffering is an alarm bell that we need to be thinking about our spiritual future, Jesus says. He says, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. Nothing is wasted. This is why Christians should keep on doing more funerals and bigger funerals. Don't join the cultural trend of abandoning the funeral service or of trying to eliminate that uncomfortable reality of death from our lives. Suffering exists in the world in part to point a very big neon arrow at our sin. To say this is not how it was meant to be. And you need to do something about it before the end comes. But understand that God will waste nothing. And connected to that, a related point that goes with the previous is that we often don't understand that God is always doing more than one thing. We often try to look at the purpose of what God is accomplishing in some of these areas of suffering or sin or outcomes or calamity. And it's not wrong to look at what God is doing. But let me just say that we should start with remembering that God is, I will say, not rarely, I will say never is God just doing one thing in any one circumstance. God is always doing at least a hundred things at the same time. Maybe a thousand things, maybe 10,000 things. God is right now doing at least 150 things in this service right now because 150 people are hearing it. 151, because I'm preaching it. Within reach of us, he's doing several more things at once within each of us. And he's going to use it then to accomplish more things as we all live differently as a result of it and talk to others. But everything... 
He's using our suffering to comfort others, to train us, to teach us, to alleviate other suffering. He uses our weakness to draw out mercy from others and to put his grace on display to the world. He uses our sin as a warning to others, the results of our sin as a correction and a discipline to us. He refines us in persecution. And I could just list verse after verse of all of these things. God is sovereign over everything. He is not wasting everything, and he's always doing more than you can imagine with everything. He's doing a thousand things to redeem our worst and our best, because even our best needs God's hand in it to be worthy. Last point, very quickly. But it's also seemingly very important to us when it comes to God's sovereignty, is that we also know, Christians, that God's justice will be accomplished and it will be accomplished perfectly. We wrestle with this a lot, don't we? This idea of people getting what they deserve. Job 8.3 says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? Genesis 18 says, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Proverbs 29, many seek the face of a ruler, but it's from the Lord that a man gets justice. Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We look at things going on in our life and we think there's a lot of injustice. We think there's a lot of things that need to be set right. And this is another place where we wonder, what is the reality of God's sovereignty in my life? Well, one of the applications that we have here, one of the realities is is that God's justice will be done perfectly. And it will be done. Because God is sovereign over all things, it will be done perfectly. That means we don't need to get overtly agitated about the outcomes of justice or injustice. And I want to qualify that a little bit too. Because we are made in God's image and we seek to follow his law, of course, we as Christians especially care deeply about justice. And we are called by God to pursue justice, to defend the defenseless, to care for the alien and the poor, to comfort the afflicted. I'm not saying that we don't do those things in pursuit of justice or not be concerned with justice. We must be concerned with justice. But what I mean here is, in terms of the sovereignty of God, is that we should not get overly agitated about the lack of justice that we cannot control or the Spirit has not led us to deal with directly. We should vote in elections and we should peacefully protest. We should make our voices heard and we should speak wisely into public matters. We should even more importantly act justly ourselves and we should serve the people who we are in contact with and bring justice to the people right here in our midst. But because God is sovereign... We should not worry or stir up discontent or be fruitlessly anxious and agitated and concerned by injustice that is ultimately in God's hands. He's got it. He will care for and take care of whatever justice needs to be taken care of. In all the lives you see around you, in your home, at work, in government, around the world, God's got it. Do your part. But trust God in his sovereignty that vengeance is his and justice will be his. And just so you know, God's going to do justice in your life too. That might be something that you want to spend some time awake at night thinking about. That God's justice comes to everyone. Whatever other people need, God will take care of. He's in control. We do what he gives us to do this day and we leave the rest to him.
This is what the sovereignty of God means. What we're coming away with here at the end is just to understand. We, we say God is sovereign. We understand providence. We say he's the king above all kings. And we know that he's in control. But I think sometimes we fail to understand just how much God is in control. There is literally nothing that he is not ordaining in your life. That he is not bending to accomplish his will. You are never adrift in life apart from God. There isn't a meteor that crashes into a planet. There isn't a chemical reaction that happens in a lab. There is not an atom that burns on the sun that is outside of the will of God. And he's got your life in that sovereign grip. So where do they all lead? Where does that leave us as Christians as we think about the sovereignty of God? Hopefully at peace. Hopefully assured and secure. Because our king is a rock. And on that rock, his kingdom, his people are built. And Matthew says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is king and he's already won. Or as Paul says it in Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us. I think actually I just want you to say that with me. Let's say it together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that? In your cancer, in your marriage, under a liberal government, (laughs) with Putin arming nukes, Whatever, if God is for us, who can be against us? He is absolutely sovereign. It's unyielding, it's absolute, it's pervasive. The unrelenting kingship of God over all things is what we can hope in. Because if God wasn't in control, then who would be? Certainly not us. So Christian, I tell you, don't shrink away from the absoluteness of God's authority. Don't let the fact that God is absolutely sovereign and in control cause you alarm or discomfort or think that you have to wrestle some piece of control away from him. God's sovereignty is not a threat to you, but your greatest comfort in all things, especially the most difficult, most evil, most calamitous, most sinful things. That's where we want God in control the most. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this cover-to-cover reality that you are king. You never relinquish it. You never relent of it. You take claim and declare sovereignty over everything, even the stuff we don't think you'd want to take credit for. You take credit for. And you say, it's mine. That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. Nope, that's mine too. That's mine. I got it. It's all under my control. And it's accomplishing my purposes perfectly. Father, that is a great comfort to those of us who don't want to be in control, who know nobody else should be in control. Father, be king of this universe, be king of this world. Most importantly, be king of each of our individual lives. Let your decrees be what happens in our life. Let your decrees be the ones that we celebrate and worship and rejoice in. 
Let your decrees be the ones that we seek out every morning and seek to put our step one after the other in line with what you would have for our life. Because you intend all things for good for those who fear you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.